First Thessalonians chapter four. If you have a Bible, you might want to open it up. In first Thessalonians chapter four, verse 13, it says. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel. And with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. A lady sent me an email a few days ago. She was concerned that on my radio program I was speaking about the rapture and I told her that a real rapture was going to take place or I said it on on the radio and and that it was going to be a pre-tribulational rapture. She wrote and she was upset. She said that the word rapture doesn't even appear in the Bible. She suggested that there was no biblical evidence that Christians would escape some coming tribulation. It is true that out of the 774,747 words in the King James Version of the Bible, the word rapture doesn't appear. But it is also true that the word Trinity doesn't appear and the word demons doesn't appear and the word grandpa and grandma doesn't appear. Yet the Trinity is real and the Bible is real and demons are real and so are grandmas. Our word rapture in part, owes its origin to a Latin word, rapere, which translates a Greek word, which is found in this text in verse 17, harapazo. It's translated in verse 17, caught up. Conservative Bible scholars believe that the first epistle, this epistle that we just read, is perhaps the oldest letter in the New Testament. There's a slight argument. Is James perhaps a few months or years older? Is First Thessalonians a few months older? The debate can go round and round. But the truth is that this is one of the earliest letters written to Christians in the first century. As a matter of fact, in Acts chapter 17 and verses 1 through 9, Luke records the story about how Calvary Chapel of Thessalonica was founded. Paul came and preached the gospel. 
As a matter of fact, Luke records how he planted the church and how an uproar followed. And Paul preached for three weeks, for three weeks in a row. He described the reality of that Jesus was the Messiah. He preached the gospel and people received hope and grace and mercy. They heard the story about Jesus, about his life, about his death, about his resurrection. And then Paul left. And tragic events unfolded. People were persecuted. Some fell sick. Some even died. People were desperate. They were hurting. There was pain. There was sorrow. Questions began to circulate. The people in Thessaloniki needed to know the truth about what happens because moms and dads and grandmas and grandpas came to a place where they buried their children and they buried their loved ones and they needed to know the truth about what happens when you die. Over the years, I've had the privilege to speak to many people who have experienced grief and sorrow, pain. In our own community of Columbine, Ground Zero in New York, of late the Aurora Theater murder massacre. Do you know what Columbine and Ground Zero and the Aurora Theater murder massacre all had in common? People were asking the same questions. How could this happen? Why did this happen? What happens when you die? Will my loved one be reconciled to me? Will those who have died have any advantage over those who are still living? In the first part of the chapter, Paul wrote about challenges in view of the rapture. We're to live lives in a way that pleases God in verses 1 and 2. Paul lists um, how we are to do just that. We're to live holy and pure lives, he says in verses 3 through 5 and 7 and 8. We're not to cheat or defraud one another, it says in verse 6. We're to love all believers, it says in verses 9 and 10. We're to pay close attention to our own business in verse 11. We're to earn a living and we're not to... Sponge off of other people's generosity in verse 12. And then Paul explains the rapture. And the purpose of the rapture in verses 13 and 18. And it was to clarify and comfort. He doesn't want them ignorant of God's prophetic plan. And to use this glorious event as an opportunity to encourage one another. And it's really interesting to me, whenever Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant, that's what most people are ignorant about. Paul gets into the particulars. The return of the Lord in verses 14 and 16. He speaks of saints. And then he speaks of sounds. All believers currently in heaven will accompany the Lord. There's going to be a shout. There's going to be a command, an archangel, a trumpet of God. And so Paul answers questions and gives comfort and encouragement based on five facts. Not fiction, not theological misunderstanding. He speaks of the fact of revelation that Jesus is the source of truth in verses 13 and the beginning of verse 15. He talks about the return, the truth about the second coming in verses 14 and 15. He talks about the resurrection, the truth about the dead in verses 15 and 16. And then the rapture, the truth about Christians living in the ultimate final generation in verse 17. 
And then he speaks of reunion, the truth about our eternal destiny with Christ in verse 18. And so revelation, Jesus is the source of truth. Look what it says in verse 13. But I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. He uses the euphemism of sleep because that's a tender way of talking about what happens when you die. He doesn't want them to be ignorant. And in verse 15, it says, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord. You have to understand something that the pagan world in which Paul lived for the most part was a place where people lived largely without hope. A typical inscription on a pagan grave reads this way. I was not. I became. I am not. I care not. The philosophy reached way back to the beginning of man's rebellion and rejection of God's command and disobedience. And the truth? It was a philosophy of despair and hopelessness. There are people right at this very moment who believe that life is meaningless and pointless and worthless and useless. And if you die, life ceases and so does the pain. I'll never forget when I was at Columbine after the shooting and people began to gather and the law enforcement agencies were there. And one of the officials came on the scene and she was crying and, and, and saying, why has this happened and why is this happening? And I, I said to her, we're in part to blame. We've taught our children that they come from nowhere and that's where they're going. And life is a point, a point of pain in a meaningless existence. And some of them believed us. Years ago, two gunmen shot and killed 13 people not far from here. They shot and injured 21 more people. And at that time was considered perhaps one of the worst school shooting incidents. One of the gunmen, Eric Harris, he posted this on his website. My belief is that if I say something, it goes. He said. I am. What I want to be. He said, I get to do what I want. And if you don't like it, you die. If I don't like you or I don't know what you want me to do or you tell me to do something that you want me to do, you die. Dead people can't do many things like argue, wit, uh, complain and then some expletive Deleted kinds of stuff. Complain, narc, rat out, criticize, or even talk. So the only way to solve arguments with all of you out there is, I just kill. And then he wrote these words. God, I can't wait till I get to kill you people. I don't care if I live or die in the shootout. All I want to do is kill and injure as many people as I can. Unquote. The Roman philosopher Seneca said anyone can stop a man's life, but no one his death. A thousand doors open to it 
What he was saying was anyone can kill anyone, but no one can make sure that he or she never dies. So what are we to believe about death? How can mortal human beings penetrate the mystery of what lies beyond death and the grave? How do you find peace? How do you find assurance? How do you make the fear go away concerning your death? Can people die and come back and tell about their experiences? Television and movies have regular themes about people who speak to the dead or or claim to speak to the dead. Lee Strobel, many years ago, had a television program and I had the privilege of doing the pilot with him. And it was my job to speak to one of the other guests. She was from Ireland and she was allegedly a medium and she talked to the dead. And I said to her, has a dead person ever lied to you? And there was this awkward silence because she knew if she said yes, she would be lying. And if she said no, well, if she said yes, they've lied, that that would alienate people. And if she said no, that she would be lying. And you could see the wheels turning even during the course of the information. And she decided to go with the lie and say, no, dead people have never told her anything that was false or anything that was wrong. And I said, you know, the Bible has a prohibition against speaking to the dead. And she said, well, not everything in the Bible is true. And so I said to her, what part of the Bible do you think is false? And again, there was this silence. It's interesting to me. Scientists have investigated near-death phenomenon Occultists have sought to channel spirit beings. People allegedly have run-ins with the dead. People who are hurt and grieving and vulnerable are sometimes gullible, and they're willing to believe almost anything that anyone will say. I, many years ago, I read a book by Dr. Maurice Rawlings, and he has written several books, but the one that comes to my mind was a book entitled Beyond Death's Door and to Hell and Back. Dr. Maurice Rawlings was a specialist in cardiovascular diseases at the Diagnostic Center in areas of of Chattanooga, Tennessee. He served in the Army and the Navy. He was the chief of cardiology in the 97th General Hospital in Frankfurt, Germany. He was the special physician to Dwight David Eisenhower. He taught at medical schools and hospitals. He was a clinical assistant professor of medicine at the University of Tennessee. And it was his job to make sure that people's hearts were ticking. And when he went to work in the emergency room in Chattanooga, Tennessee, there was several different things that began to happen. He got patients who would claim to have died and would come back and they would say stuff like, I'm burning, I'm in darkness, I'm in hell, make the pain go away. He tells the story of a, of a, of a 47 year old man, a U.S. mail carrier who was exercising on the treadmill to reproduce a chest pain. He said, one in 10,000 people will have a negative reaction. He said, a person was on the treadmill and he just fell over dead. His heart stopped ticking. And They started cardiovascular massage. They did CPR. The man was screaming. He was 
He was having mind-boggling screams. He was scaring the nurses and even the doctor. He was crying out, I'm in hell, I'm in hell, make it stop, make it stop. And the nurses said, doctor, you need to do something. And like out of a, a scene out of Star Trek, he says, I'm a doctor, not a minister. This man needs a minister. And he says, do something in the man. And the doctor said, "Okay." he remembered a Sunday school prayer. He said, "Okay, just say this after me. Say, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner and I know that I need a savior. And I know that you can save me from my sin. Please save me from my sin. And he repeated the prayer and the scream stopped. And then he lapsed back into a coma. And then he came back. And he spoke of going to heaven. And this medical doctor wrote. Unless you know where you're going when you die. It's not safe to die. (laughs) No kidding. Death is. A mystery. But it's also certainty. And so who has the facts about death? And the big thing for most Christians is why should we substitute mere human speculation for divine revelation? The Lord Jesus has taken all of the guesswork away. Remember what we just read in verse 15? For this we say to you by... Read it for yourself. This we say to you by the word of the Lord. Where did Paul get his information? ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, Fox News, the History Channel, the Psychic Channel. No, this is from the word of the Lord. He got his information from the Future Channel. Paul did not make it up. He didn't borrow it from religious leaders. He didn't steal it from some unnamed source. Paul got his information from God. Jesus Christ has given us the only reliable record concerning what really happens when you die. How many people do you know, by the way, who have died where they are really dead and then they come back to life never to die ever again? The list is fairly short. Jesus is the only person who's ever died and come back to life. Remember what Jesus said. He said, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. And the very first mention of this rapture takes place in the Gospel of John in chapter 14, where Jesus says, I'm leaving, I'm going. But if I go, I'm going to prepare a place for you to receive you to my self. Jesus is the only reliable source of information about what happens when you die. And then we look at return, the truth about the second coming. In verse 14, remember what Paul says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and here's the implication, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that's exactly what we believe. We believe that he died and he rose again. Even so, God will bring with him, that is Jesus, those who are asleep in Jesus. Paul reminds the readers what they believe. They believe Jesus died, that he's going to come back. 
the New Testament teaches that Jesus will return and he's going to come back for several reasons. Number one, he comes back to save us. First Thessalonians chapter one, verses nine and ten. He comes back to serve us. First Thessalonians chapter two, verses 19 and 20 in a joyous reunion, which I'm going to explore in just a moment. And number three, he comes back to provide stability or assurance for our existence. In first Thessalonians chapter three, verses 11 through 13. Look what it says. Just go one chapter back. Verse Thessalonians 3.11. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in all love to one another and to all. Just as we do to you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his Saints. And Jesus comes back so that we can have hope. But I need you to understand something. It's not just a theological hope. It isn't just a technical hope. It is a hope and sorrow for people who are experiencing real pain. People who are experiencing separation. Death, sorrow, grief. He's talking about times like now. You know, death has been called the great leveler. Everyone dies. I was standing in line to get a chai tea, extra hot, no water. And this person was behind me. And they were having a conversation about what happens when you die. And one person said to the other person, I guess I'm just going to have to die in order to find out. And I turned around and I couldn't help but saying, don't you think that's going to be a little late? Do you remember the great song that used to be sung? It was. um, I'm not. I pray there is. I pray that there's a heaven. I pray there is no hell. But you'll never know by living, only your dying will tell. It's only your dying will tell. And so, that's what makes loss, death, are equal. The Bible says the soul that sins, it shall surely die. Everyone dies. Death makes us equal. There's no comfort, by the way, in the knowledge that death makes us equal because it equals loss and separation and sorrow. When someone you love dies, you want comfort and you want hope. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians that they have every reason to believe that they would see their loved one again. And he does that by saying that they would return with Jesus and that they're alive. And because Jesus is alive, they're alive. Paul wrote to people, and this is part of what you need to understand. They were just like you and me when their child died, when their parent died, when their loved one died. They went to the grave and they wept and they cried and they grieved and their hearts ached just like you and just like me. I've spent time with scores of men and women, parents and police, weeping tears of joy and discovering in a life-threatening situation that their loved one had been found alive. 
But I've also been with mothers and fathers and family who were told for the first time that their loved one is gone. And there's few things in the whole wide world that are more difficult. There's few things more difficult than to go to a lady and say your husband is dead and to have the lady fall apart and beg you to tell her children. Can you imagine saying to a six year old and a three year old that their father is not coming home ever? And in verse 14, Paul writes about those who sleep in Jesus. These are the dead in Christ in verse 15. They will by no means precede those who are asleep. The word precede, by the way, means to so order or control circumstances that a certain proposed act will not take place. It's his way of saying the death of our loved ones will in no way prohibit or keep them out of heaven. It means that our being alive on the planet Earth will not prevent our loved ones who are in Christ from being with Jesus. They go to heaven. And then he talks about the truth about the resurrection in verses 15 and 16. Look what it says in verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Different denominations tease each other with that particular phrase. I've told you the story when I was flying from California to Albuquerque, how I was getting ready to go into the ministry. And there was this Baptist minister behind me and we were talking about ministry. And he goes, do you know what I'd be if I wasn't a Baptist? I said, no, what would you be? He goes, I'd be thoroughly ashamed of myself. Yeah, that's what I did. I laughed too and I said, man, that's a great line. People will use this, the dead in Christ will rise first to pick on whatever denomination that they happen to be against. Well, you know, I know that these people are going to rise first because they're the dead in Christ. That's actually not what it means. The truth about the dead is that they will be resurrected and the dead in Christ will rise first. First, not reconstructed, not reincarnated. In other words, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that the reality is not about reconstruction or even reincarnation. The biblical solution to the problem of death is resurrection. And when Paul preached the resurrection of the dead to the Athenian philosophers just south of Thessalonica, they mocked him. And and to the Greeks, the great goal in life was to join 24-hour fitness or ballets and put on the perfect bod. That's what they wanted. The Greeks were looking at a perfect physique. You may not know this, but I have abs of steel. This collagen little cover is just to protect those abs of steel. (laughs) The Greeks thought, even if the resurrection were true... What a big, fat, stinking waste of time. I mean, if you're old, if you're wrinkled, if you're gray, if you're bent, who wants a rickety old body to come back to life? The Greeks, like many modern skeptics, speculated, well, what happens? I mean, 
How is this even possible? I mean, if your molecules are spread all across the land, how could you possibly come back to life? I mean, just think about it for a minute. Let's say you die and the worms crawl in and the worms crawl out and the worms play pinnacle on your, your snout and you decompose and then you're dead and then the grass grows and a cow comes and eats the grass and somebody milks the cow and then drinks the milk and your molecules are scattered all over the universe. How in the world is God going to bring you back to life? And the answer is fairly simple. Remember the very first sentence in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Do you realize that if you can believe that first line in the Bible, everything else becomes progressively easier after that? If God can do that, there's nothing that God can't do. To the Greeks, the doctrine of the resurrection was foolish and impossible. And the same is true today, except for one gnawing reality. A person came to the planet Earth and he lived the perfect life that you could never live. And he died on the cross and he came back to life. And in verse 17, in verse 16, when it says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. There's three times in the Bible where we see Jesus shouting. And every time it happens, a dead person comes back to life. In John chapter 11, he shouts, Lazarus! Come forth. You know why he said Lazarus? Because if he would have just said, come forth, it would have been zombie apocalypse at that point. Every dead person within the sound of his voice would have come back to life. From the cross of Calvary, he shouted. It is finished. And it was followed by a resurrection. And here, there's a shout again. In the passage, there are three unique sounds. The Lord shouts, the Lord descends with a shout, verse 16. The sound of a trumpet, it says, the trumpet of God. And the voice of an archangel. Let me ask you a question. Did you come from a family of shouters? Yeah, me too. Haven't you ever wondered why people like yell? And I think that there's a reason because they think that they're going to be better heard. The sounds are, in a sense, God's way of saying it's time. When my father would come home, (laughs) it was like a scene out of Lucy and Desi Arnaz, where Desi Arnaz would hit the door and go, oh, Lucy, I'm home. And I'm thinking that's exactly what's happening here. There's a shout. It's God's way of saying it's time. Trumpets were used to declare war. They were used to announce special times. They were used to gather people for a journey or to herald the arrival of a dignitary or an important person. And Jesus believed in the resurrection. 
And the Bible teaches that death is not the end of all things. And Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. So the grave isn't the end. And you never need to know that more than when you're standing by that grave. So why is there going to be a rapture? Remember the context of Paul's writing. Clarification, I don't want you to be ignorant, and comfort. I need to give you hope. Now remember what's happening. The Thessalonians are grieving. They are mourning. And sometimes it is almost impossible to understand how deep grief can go. I've told you the story of a, of a woman who, whose baby died tragically. And I tried everything to comfort her. I said everything that I could think of to say. And she looked at me and she said, I don't believe you. She said, I guess I'm just going to have to pretend like I never had her. Can you imagine how empty your life has to be to come to that kind of a conclusion? Why is there going to be a rapture? Because the Lord is giving a simple answer to a world that needs hope. In Titus chapter 2 verse 13 it says, looking for the blessed hope. And glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I believe that the world is headed down a road of moral and ethical and spiritual and physical decay. Is the world really going to get better or is it going to get worse? Human suffering takes place because of human sin, not because of divine apathy. Lindsay was right. God really cares. God loves you. Jesus loves you. The gospel message is rooted in history and revelation. It is so not simply that your sins go away, but your fears will go away about life and death. And the gospel message, because it's rooted both in history and revelation, means that it's true. A real Jesus rises from the dead. And no wonder in verse 17, look what it says. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up. Jesus speaks of a terminal generation which will be alive and that this particular group will be caught up. The Greek word is hadapadzo. And again, it has several different meanings. And we're going to look at just a few. And by the way, the Latin fathers translated this word rapere. Our English word rapture comes from it. And the word hadapadzo, like I said, means to be caught up. Depending on the context, it can mean snatched. It, it wouldn't even be impossible to translate this kidnapped or jerked away. As a matter of fact, that's one of the meanings. It means to carry by force. And that's how it's used in John chapter 6, verse 15. Some have speculated that Satan and demons may work overtime to try to keep Christians rooted and grounded in this particular world. Warren Wearsby comments, I trust it does not suggest that some saints will be so attached to the world that they have to be literally dragged away. But that's been my experience. Lord, you can't come. 
My wife's not ready. Lord, you can't come. My children aren't ready. Lord, you can't come. I still need to have a baby or get married. Let's reverse that. Get married. Have a baby. Wearsby writes, like Lot being delivered from Sodom, they will scarcely be saved. Is it possible that when the rapture takes place, will Jesus find you in a place where you woke up that morning and you said those wonderful words, Lord, today, maybe this day, you'll come. The word also means to rescue from danger or destruction. That's how it's used in Acts chapter 23, verse 10. It speaks of a world in grave danger. So it, it was used to describe a rescue from destruction. And let me be very clear that when I was at Columbine and when I was at Ground Zero and when I was with the Aurora Theater and these particular people, what all of them have in common is when loved ones show up on the scene, they want to make sure that their loved one is fine and safe. It also means to catch away in a speedy fashion. That's how it's translated in Acts chapter 8, verse 39, where Philip is caught away. You know the story. Philip comes. He speaks to the Ethiopian eunuch. He gives him the gospel. And the Ethiopian eunuch or treasurer says, what's to keep me from being baptized? And he says, here's some water. And Philip dunks him in the water. And when they come up out of the water, the Ethiopian eunuch is there. But Philip is gone. He's been caught Away, And he's transported some 50 miles to the north. The Bible says, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. Rapture. In 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Do you know how fast the twinkling of an eye is? It's the amount of time that it takes for light to reflect off the surface of your pupil. That's fairly quick. It also means to claim for oneself. That's the perspective of Jesus. His church is his bride. We belong to Jesus. It also can mean to move to a new place. Paul used that term in relationship to his vision of heaven in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 4, when he says, whether I was in the body or out of the body, I don't know, but I know of a person who was caught up. Same word. And so we hear about the reunion, the truth about the eternal destiny with Christ. Look what it says in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The truth is, there's a terminal generation. Jesus is going to return. We will be caught up in the air. By the way, there are two Greek words for air. One is ether, which, which I'm going to describe in just a moment. The other is air. Let me help you understand a Greek standing on Mount Olympus, which is six thousand four hundred and three feet in elevation, would point upwards and he would say, excuse me, he would point down and would say air. He would point up and he would say ether. It came to mean 
the outer edge of the atmosphere. This is the word that's used here. We will be caught up in the ether, in the air. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth. And by the way, there are several reasons why I believe the rapture and the second coming are different. During the event called the rapture, believers meet the Lord in the air. At the second coming, believers return with the Lord to the earth, according to Revelation 19.14. The second coming occurs after a great and terrible tribulation, the time of Jacob's sorrow, according to Revelation chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18, and 19. The rapture occurs before the tribulation in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10. The, the church is repeated over and over again in chapter 1, in chapter 2, in chapter 3, and then in chapter 4, the church disappears. The second coming includes the removal of unbelievers as an act of judgment, according to Matthew 24, verses 40 and 41. The rapture is secret and instant, according to 1 Corinthians 15, 50. The second coming is visible to all, Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, Matthew 24, 29. The second coming of Jesus comes on the heels of some very specific prophecies, including the revelation of an antichrist, a series of wars, campaigns of terror and the global government. But the rapture, it could happen at any moment. It is what the Bible calls imminent. And let me help you understand what that word imminent means. It means the next thing on the prophetic calendar. And if the rapture and the second coming are the same event then the coming of Christ is not imminent. And this is why I believe that the rapture and the second coming are similar, but separate events. Both involve the return of Jesus. Both are in the end times. But it's crucial that we recognize the differences. The rapture is the return of Jesus in the clouds to remove the believers from the earth who will experience the judgment of God. For the rejection of Christ. By the way, the word meet the Lord in the air carries with it the idea of the introduction to a royal person or an important dignitary. And so we who have walked by faith on the earth will with Jesus will one day meet him in the air. And you know what the Bible says? And we will always be with the Lord. If you're the kind of person who underlines their Bible... You should underline that always and forever. And we're going to be reunited with our loved ones. People often ask me on my radio program, will we know each other in heaven? And I love Spurgeon's answer. I think it's the best answer ever. Spurgeon said, do you think we're going to be more stupid in heaven than we are on the earth? If you know each other here, you're going to know each other there. There's a gravestone in England. It reads this way. Pause, my friend, as you walk by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be. Prepare, my friends, to follow me. Someone added these lines under the inscription. 
to follow you is not my intent until I know which way you went. Good advice. Catherine Marshall wrote a book entitled A Man Called Peter. And it details the story of her husband, Peter Marshall, who was a chaplain and pastor to the United States Congress. In the book, she tells the touching story of a young man who was terminally ill. His name was Kenneth. And because he was so ill, he had to stay indoors a whole lot. He couldn't run and play with the other children. And she would read to him exciting stories about kings and castles. And he particularly loved the story of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. And he loved bold adventure. He loved stories where heroes took risks to right wrongs. And he also knew that he was dying. And one day Kenneth asked his mother the inevitable question that she was dreading. He asked her, what is death like? Does it hurt to die? And the woman struggled to maintain her composure. She went into the kitchen and she braced herself against the stove. And she gathered her thoughts. And she knew that this was an important moment. And she prayed. And she asked God to give her the right words to say and to keep her from breaking down and crying. She said, Kenneth, do you remember when you were a young boy, a tiny boy, and used to play hard all day? And that when night would come, you would get so tired, you would be so tired, you couldn't even undress. And you would tumble into your mother's bed and you would fall asleep. And he said, yes. And she said, that wasn't your bed. It's not where you belong. And you would only stay there for a little while. And in the morning you would wake up. And you would find yourself in your own bed. Because someone loved you. And picked you up. In his strong arms. Your father would come. And he would take you away. And Kenneth, death is exactly like that. We wake up some morning and we find ourselves in the other room, the place where we belong. Because Jesus loves us. And the lad's face was shining and trusting. And he looked into hers and the point had gone home. There was nothing to fear. Only love and trust in his little heart. And the moment came when he went to be with his father in heaven. He never questioned ever again. And one day he fell asleep. And he woke up. Let's pray. Lord, we know that there are so many people who love to debate the theological nuances. But Lord, we know that buried deep in this text 
are words of comfort and hope that we can hold on to. The truth about what happens when you die, you go to be with Jesus. The truth about when Jesus comes back, he will come for us. And we will come with him. The truth about the second coming, Jesus will accomplish the plans and purposes that have been meant to come to pass since the beginning of time. The earth must be judged. The rebellion must be put down. And Jesus must fulfill all of the promises that he's made to the Jewish people. And he must rule and reign on his father's throne. But Lord, we know that there's an important place of occupation that needs to take place right at this very moment. And that's in the hearts and lives of human beings who, for whatever reason, feel compelled to reject you and resist you. And Lord, I pray in particular for that person who is absolutely frightened of the thought of dying. Lord, I pray that you would communicate in no uncertain terms for those who know you and those who love you. There's a future where we wake up in the strong arms of our Father who loves us. Lord, we pray that we would turn from our sin, that we would turn to you, that, Lord, we could be men and women who offer comfort and hope and truth when it's needed most in Jesus' name. Amen.